Well, good morning. <laughs> that was enthusiastic. Thank you, Dolores, for that. I uh, would love to welcome you this morning to Christ Community Bible Church. We are glad you're here. And for those joining us online and watching live or even later, uh, we welcome you as well. And if you're visiting us this morning, whether here in person or online, um, we welcome you especially, and we're glad you're here with us. I will echo this morning what we hear from Jared week after week when he steps to the pulpit. This is the most important meeting on the face of the planet, where the redeemed of the Lamb across the globe gather together to worship the one who redeemed them. And that is what we do here this morning. So as we open God's word this morning, let us be so captivated by the living Christ that we cry out like the four living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Worthy are you, O Christ Jesus. And we worship him this morning. As Tommy read, we're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, chapter 9. Hopefully you didn't take your finger out of that page and you're still there. John chapter 9. And we're going to actually go through the entire chapter 9 this morning. That may seem uh, kind of daunting, but we're going to make it through that this morning. And I don't know if you all have favorite miracles in the Bible. I don't know if you ever think about that type of thing, that uh, there's a miracle that really sticks out to you and, and one that you enjoy. Well, this will have to be one of mine. When Jesus healed the blind man, and not just any blind man, a man who is blind from birth. And he's going to do this in the midst of a bunch of controversy that's going on. And we will witness here in these pages of Scripture the display of the glory of Christ. We're also going to be confronted with some great spiritual truths. And we must decide how we are going to live in light of those truths. But before we dig into the Word of God, let me open in prayer. Father, we thank you for the blessing of this meeting to sing your praise, to open your word. Reach out and touch your people and let us hear you speak through your word. As we come to your precious word, O oh Lord, we ask for wisdom and understanding. Water the hearts of those who hear your word that seed sown in weakness may be raised in power. Do a mighty work of grace in our lives. May it fill us with great joy. And bless us now as you speak to us. And Lord, I pray that you will use your servant, though frail, weak, and greatly flawed, to declare your truths from your word. Let me speak love and truth for your name's sake. Amen. The Gospel of John is a magnificent book with a beautiful structure. And all of it points to one thing. And John tells us what that is in the last chapter. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So to fully understand chapter nine this morning, we need to know what happened leading up to this. If we read chapter nine by itself, we're going to miss some very important events. For example, we're going to miss who Jesus claimed to be. And we're going to miss why the Jewish leaders hated him so much coming into this chapter. The first part of the gospel of John can be broken into several unique parts. The very first 19 verses of chapter one present to us Christ incarnate. It is the eternal son of God came and became fully human while remaining fully God. And then up through chapter four, we call that the Cana cycle. And Jesus begins by performing a miracle in Cana and ends with another miracle in Cana. And he's presented as the Christ or the Messiah who came to give life. But beginning in chapter five, the mood turns. This is known as the festival cycle because the events John describes to us all occurred during the festivals. What's important to see here is the opposition to Jesus grows and it really begins in chapter five at the beginning. Jesus was in Jerusalem for one of the feasts and he healed a lame man on the Sabbath. Chapter five, verse 16 tells us that the Jews persecuted Jesus and wanted to kill him because he healed on the Sabbath and called God his father, thus making himself equal with God. So from now on, when you read in the gospel of John or you hear this morning that Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath, we need to hear that ominous music in our head, that dun, dun, dun. Something is about to happen. This is not gonna make the Jewish leaders happy. And they're gonna find out They're going to be upset. And this is one of the accusations that they levied against him, that because he healed on the Sabbath, he broke the Sabbath law. So this man cannot be trusted. This man must be discredited. This man cannot be followed or listened to. And so when you hear that, that he healed on the Sabbath, you've got to hear that music in your head because something is about to happen. Now, who are the Jews? When the Apostle John refers to the Jews, he's not really referring to all of the ethnic Jews because he himself and the Apostle John who wrote the gospel, they were all ethnic Jews. So when John says the Jews, he's meaning the religious authorities. It's the religious authorities of the day that hated Jesus and they opposed him and they really hated that he healed on the Sabbath. Now, the events of chapter 9 actually begin in chapter 7. Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called the Feast of Booths. Sometimes it's transliterated and called Sukkot. It occurred in the fall, and this was at the time of harvest. And it was the last of the seven annual feasts. And it was really a wonderful time, a time of celebration. And the people reenacted their ancestors' time in the wilderness as they wandered about living in tents and God preserved them for 40 years. And they called this our season of gladness. And people would dress up in their Sunday best every day. 
and they built these tents or these booths and they would build them anywhere. If they lived in Jerusalem, they might build them on their rooftops. If they were visiting Jerusalem for the festival, they might build them in the alleys. They might build them along the streets. It was a huge celebration. And over time, this festival that was commanded by God all the way back in the Pentateuch, the law, took on more ceremony and more rituals so that by the time we get to Christ, they had uh, quite a few things they were doing during this week. In fact, they had to build their tents to very specific specifications. The material had to be thin enough to let some light in. In fact, if you would read the Talmud, it would say, you have to have enough light that it's not, it's not sun or shadow. I mean, they were getting real particular on how they wanted that done. And they had to leave a, a hole in the roof so you could see the stars at night. And every morning the people would gather at the temple and they would follow the priests and the priests would leave the temple and they would have this procession to the pool of Siloam and they would take out water. And when they said that, when they took out the water, they would quote and they would say, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And they would take that water back to the temple and they would pour it on the altar. And the people would carry citrus fruit in their one hand. And then they would carry branches of different trees in their other hand. And they're trying to remember that, that God had provided for them. And they're trusting in God for, for their produce and for their harvest and they would have this joyful procession every morning. They would do this. About halfway through this week-long festival, Jesus began teaching in the temple. Now the people were actually looking for him, wondering if he would show up. Because earlier, when he was there and healed on the Sabbath, the Jews wanted to kill him. So some people were just looking, is there going to be a confrontation? Are we going to see conflict? What happens if Jesus comes up? Let's see some excitement. They were wondering if he'd show up and he did. And he began teaching in the temple halfway through. But on the last day, he declared, with everybody having now seven days of this water ritual in mind, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And when he said this, the people began thinking and wondering and asking, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? Some people said no. Other, people's, other people wondered, could it be? There was another great ceremony or ritual that occurred during this that was not prescribed in scripture, but over time, they had developed this. And each evening in the, in the court of women in the temple, they would, they would erect these large uh, towers and four large torches would be lit on top. They said each one would hold and burn through 18 gallons of oil every night. And they would gather together in the court and they'd have these large torches and they're remembering that when, they, when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, God led them by a pillar of fire by night. And so they're reenacting that. And it's a joyous time as they're doing it. And so the Levites would come out and they would play music and there would be certain pious men who would come out and dance all night to the music in front of the torches, remembering what God had done 
leading them by a pillar of fire by night. And it was after seeing this for seven nights that Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As you can imagine, the Jews were not happy with that claim. But he would make one more claim at the end of chapter 8. And when the Jews were questioning him about his declaration that he is the light of the world, he made the statement, before Abraham was, I am. I am. The name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. Jesus was declaring himself to be God. And the Jews hated him even more for that. But finally, before we get into the text, we need to see that the Apostle John refers to the miracles of Christ throughout his book as signs. He does this for a reason. Just as we have signs today, signs along the road as you're driving along and you see a sign, the sign is always pointing to something else. Sometimes the sign points you to an exit that's coming up. Sometimes there's a nasty curve in the road up ahead and the signs warn you of that. These are signs, but they always point to something else. It's never about the sign itself. And so when the apostle John uses these signs in scripture, in his gospel, he always wants us to see beyond the actual sign, beyond the miracle. He wants us to see what it means. What does it point to? It's important in, in, in chapter two, the people wanted to see a sign. And when he began performing signs, the Jews said the real Messiah will perform more. So he's performing these wonderful signs. And what are they doing? Are they looking at the signs to see where they're pointing? No, they're simply counting them and saying, not enough. I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard that it's an indication of a dog's intelligence that when you point at something, most dogs will stare at your hand. Only the intelligent dogs will actually look to see what you're pointing at. Okay? These signs point to something. And we're going to see that the, the Jewish leaders stared at the hand. They didn't look to see what it pointed to. They stared at the hand. So now we'll get to the text for today. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. 
So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Think back to Jesus' claim in chapter eight. He claimed to be God. He claimed that not only was he the great I am, but he was the light of the world. That pillar of fire by night. Jesus was the light of the world. And now in chapter nine, he's going to prove it that he is indeed the light of the world. And with the stakes so high here in chapter nine, it opens with a seemingly mundane statement. The apostle John records for us and simply says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. You see, it was Jesus who initiated this encounter. Jesus saw the man blind from birth. This is a great reminder that Jesus is in control of all things. He was in control at the temple in the previous chapters. He's in control during this encounter. Isn't it odd that sometimes we are quick to agree with and declare that Jesus is the great creator God and and declare all the great things he has done. And yet we neglect to recognize that he's in control of the everyday things and events in our lives. Every day, all things. But this story takes a twist because we're not going to get straight to the healing, straight to the miracle, straight to the sign. Instead, a theological discussion erupts. There's a dilemma. This man was born blind from birth. What did theology of the day say? Good people, blessed. Bad people, bad things. This man is born blind. Obviously, there was some sin. There were some bad things that occurred. But I'm confused. Did this man sin while he was yet in the womb? Or was it his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind? And this wasn't uncommon. This would have been the thinking of the day. You see, we tell ourselves that the problem of suffering, of pain, of tragedy, would be far more tolerable if we could understand why things happen. We ask, why? Job wondered why things were happening to him. He never got the answer to why. He simply got the answer to who God is. But now, it would have been easy if this man had been born with sight and then gone blind. We could say, yes, it was his fault. But did he somehow sin while he was in his parents, in his mother's womb? If it was his parents' sin, doesn't that seem cruel? 
that he would be afflicted with blindness? So maybe if we could pinpoint this and say, yeah, it was the parents' sin, we have our answer. And if we can't find sin in the parents, then we have to guess we blame the guy that he somehow sinned in the womb. And they would point to a passage such as Psalm 8.3, which says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And they would say, well, there's evidence. It's possible that he could have sinned in the womb. But in this case, the disciples had Jesus with them. So they asked him instead. And basically they said, was it the works of the parents, meaning the sinful works of the parents, or was it the sinful work of this man while he was still yet unborn that caused his blindness? And Jesus gave a different answer. He said that it was neither the works of the parents or the works of the man, but it was so that the works of God could be displayed. Jesus completely rejected the two alternatives they gave. Sin of the parents, sin of the man. He said, no, it's something else. And there we have the setup for this chapter. Jesus is going to use the tragedy of this man to reveal the wondrous works of God. Notice Jesus says, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming. He's referring to his earthly ministry daytime. There would be a time of night and that time would be between his death and resurrection. And during that time, the disciples would do nothing as they were still traumatized by the crucifixion of Jesus. He reminded them while he is in the world, he is the light of the world. This is a reference to what he had declared earlier. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The world was in darkness. Darkness is a reference to sin and to evil and to spiritual ignorance. But Jesus is the light of the world. Isaiah prophesied and he said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Jesus is the true light, not just another light in the world. In the Apostle John's first epistle, he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And that's Jesus' claim. It's a bold claim, but he's going to prove it. And this, this claim had all kinds of implications and the Jewish leaders knew it. Each night when the, the great festive of lamps, the, the, the pillars were lit and the Levites played music and the pious men danced, the Jews were reminding themselves of wandering in the desert after they left Egypt when God led them by a pillar of fire. And Jesus used that theme of the wilderness wanderings and proclaimed that those who follow him would not walk in darkness. And Jesus was clearly identifying himself with that pillar of fire and thus with God. The Jewish leaders did not miss this reference. Throughout scripture, God is epitomized as the light of life, God's victory, and where darkness is no problem for God to overcome. Psalm 56, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Psalm 37, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. 
Psalm 139, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Even non-Jews were aware of the theme of light and darkness, good and evil. And Jesus reminded them again, and he would prove it. He anointed the man's eyes with mud and told, told him to go wash in the pool of, a pool of Siloam. John tells us that Siloam means sent. Remember, Jesus said, we must do the works of him who sent me. It's a reminder that Jesus is about the work of the Father. Always. He's doing the Father's will. And this is the same pool where each day the festival priests would, would have that procession and they'd go and they'd draw the water out and declare, with joy you shall draw from the water, uh, draw water from the wells of salvation. And the man did as Jesus commanded. Did he feel foolish doing it? Did he know who Jesus was? He probably certainly had heard of Jesus. But he did what he said, what he had commanded. And for the first time in his life, light broke through and he could see. Light penetrated the darkness. Can you imagine what's going through this man's mind? He had never seen anything before. He could hear people. He could probably touch their face. He heard them speak of color. He would hear them speak of a sunset. But he had never seen any of these. He had never seen a tree or a flower. This was all new and amazing. And so the first thing he did is he went home. As you can imagine, he's going home to his family and to his neighbors. And when he arrived, people wondered if that was him. Why? Because never before in recorded history has a man or a person who's been born blind received their sight. It has never happened. So they ask him, what happened? A great sign had been given. It was pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, as the son of God. But his neighbors didn't understand this. And they acted like the indecisive crowds we, re we would read about in other chapters. They wanted a simple answer. You see, they were staring at the hand. They thought, if, if you could describe the hand well enough, I can understand. They wanted him to tell them what had happened. When they asked who did it, he just simply says, Jesus. Figures they would all know who Jesus was. He'd been the talk of the town. People had wondered if he would come. When he did come, he made some great declarations. And now a blind man had received sight and they couldn't see past the hand. His neighbors knew something incredible had occurred, but they didn't understand it. They wanted clear, cut and dry answers. And just like the disciples who wanted to know who sinned, this man or his parents, these people weren't seeking deep spiritual insights. They just wanted an explanation. Explain the hand to me again. So they took him to the Jewish leaders. And this begins a, a, some multiple rounds of questioning by the Pharisees. You see, this had been a joyous occasion. A blind man 
had received his sight. He was healed. What could possibly dampen the mood of that? But listen for it. Listen for that music in your head as we read the text. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Dun, dun, dun. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? So the Pharisees asked again, Ask him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And when they asked them, is this your son? Who you say, who you say was born blind. We're not going to say it. You're saying that he was born blind. How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, that is the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. All right, I think you may have heard the music. Jesus did this on the Sabbath. The very thing that back in chapter five made the Jews want to kill him. It happened again. And we knew it was going to bring trouble. The Pharisees begin by asking to see the hand. Tell me what happened. Describe the hand to me. And when they heard it, there was a division among us. Some of them began holding up their own signs. He healed on the Sabbath, therefore he's a sinner. Cut and dry couldn't be simpler. Others wondered, well, how could a sinner perform such a sign? Did you notice they're all staring at the hand? They're looking at the sign. Some of them wanted to discredit the sign, say it never happened. Others just could not understand it. And unsure of what they are seeing, they ask the blind man, how incredible is this? These are the Jewish leaders. These are the religious leaders. These are the experts in the law. And when something happens, a sign happens, they don't understand it. So they're going to turn to the blind beggar and ask him. It's pretty incredible. They must have been pretty befuddled to ask a former beggar and blind man for spiritual insight. Perhaps they asked him because they thought that he too would fear them and he would not affirm Jesus in any way. If we look back to chapter five, when Jesus healed the man who was lame and it was on the Sabbath and he picked up his his bed and he went home and the Jewish leader stopped him and they said, What are you doing? 
you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. And he said, well, the man who healed me told me to pick it up, take it home with me. Who was it? He said, I don't know. Didn't know who it was. Later on, Jesus would find this man in the temple. And when he learned it was Jesus who had done this, he quickly went and reported to the Jewish leaders, it was Jesus who healed on the Sabbath. That's who it was. He kind of betrayed him a little bit. But now they were trying to coerce an answer out of this guy. If they could get this man to discredit Jesus, surely those fickle crowds out there would discredit him too. And despite the prevailing threats of the Pharisees, the man says that Jesus must be a prophet. This was so obvious to this man. By saying a prophet, he's trying to think of the highest, of the greatest, most godly person or position that he can think of. There's no higher office. He, he must be a prophet. This guy is holding him up as that. But they didn't like that answer. They didn't want that answer. They needed to find a new narrative. They needed to discount this guy. They needed to discredit this guy. So they decided, let's try to prove that this thing never happened. Let's call his parents in. So they came in to testify. Let them tell us if he was really born blind or if this is a hoax. And they put a little pressure on him by saying, how now, or how does he see now? How, how does he now see? And again, they're focusing on the hand. They're, they're focusing on the sign, the miracle that took place. He's, they were thinking, let them tell us who's really blind from birth. They do not want to believe that the sign is real. The parents, though, were fearful of the Jews and fearful of being cast out of the synagogue and fellowship. By this time, the Jews had made it known. If anybody would declare Jesus to be the Messiah, they were to be an outcast. Jesus was not welcome there. And uh, the parents knew of that threat. So their answer is both accurate and evasive. They simply affirm that, yes, he was born blind, and they don't know anything else. I don't know if you have, any of you remember the old Hogan's Heroes comedy and Sergeant Schultz. I know nothing. That's what the parents are doing. I know nothing. And yes, he was born blind. Well, what else happened? I don't know. Ask him. He's old enough to tell you. Why are you looking at me? And they just wanted to get out of there. But Jesus had told his followers as early as the Sermon on the Mount that anyone who followed him would face persecution. That's the cost of discipleship. Jesus hid none of this from his followers. If you confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, there would be persecution. The same was true back then. The same is true today. Brothers and sisters around the globe today who face great persecution for confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. So far here in America, we have not faced widespread persecution, but it's coming. Scripture tells us it's coming. It doesn't call out America by name, but just says this is where the world's going. The world is going in this direction and everybody will be affected by it. But be encouraged. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize. Jesus really is 
the majestic Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the resurrected, the first and the last who has conquered sin and death. But back to the text. The Pharisees aren't getting what they want. They want to disprove this guy. They want to disprove this sign. They want this to go away. When the parents didn't give them what they want, they're going to go round two with the man. So they bring the man back in, verse 24. So for a second time, they called the man who had been born, who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does, not, and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. I'll I'll confess, I do kind of love this little interaction with the blind man. I do feel bad as being a blind man he would have been an outcast from the beginning. So his whole life, he's an outcast. And Jesus does the most amazing thing and restores his sight. But because they reject Jesus, almost immediately he's an outcast again. That's the consequence of discipleship. So they call this man to meet with him. And they say, give glory to God. In other words, tell the truth. That's what they're saying. What a way to begin. You see their intention? This is going to be, they're going to treat him as what? An unfriendly witness, a hostile witness. And so they begin, we know this man is a sinner. Do you hear that? We know this man is a sinner. They are trying their best to put this man on the spot. You see, if they can get this man who was healed to disavow Jesus, they can use him for their purposes. So they begin with, we know. The Pharisees had already decided the verdict. Jesus was guilty for healing on the Sabbath. Their minds were made up. Now they just need this man to agree with them. So they say, tell the truth. We know this man is a sinner. There's no question here. They just want to coerce him to get him to agree with them. Listen to the response. Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But here's what I do know. I was blind and now I see. The sign was crucial for the Pharisee's case. 
If it didn't happen, Jesus is discredited. So they pushed to erase the sign. The man gave his sworn testimony that yes, he was blind and yes, he received his sight. I don't know what the man was thinking at the time, but the follow-up questions clearly revealed to him the sinister motives behind their inquisition. The Pharisees didn't like his answer. So they asked him again, describe the hand. Tell us what happened. At this point, the man gets it. He understands their intent. And instead of answering their questions, he asks them questions of his own. Why do you want to hear it again? I've already told you. Do you want to become his disciples? I think the man knew the answer to both questions. He is just in disbelief that these men of God not only did not understand, but they were hostile hostile to Jesus for doing such a wonderful thing. When the man pointed this out to the Pharisees, they didn't like it at all. And it says they reviled him. They were verbally abusive to him. They said, you are that guy's disciple. Like that's a bad thing. You follow that guy, the sinner. We follow Moses. They say that they knew that God spoke to Moses and no no one would disagree. We agree. God did speak to Moses. We're all in agreement. But their next statement is ironic. They say that they are disciples of Moses, but they don't know where Jesus came from. Moses testified to who Jesus was and is. Jesus himself said that in chapter seven. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. Moses pointed to the Messiah. The Pharisees claimed to believe Moses, yet they rejected the Messiah that he spoke of. And I think at this point, the man is now beginning to see. The man has been looking to where the hand was pointing. He knew there was something great out there. These spiritual insights were starting to come through. And I think he's now starting to see it. And I think that this this belief, this truth is welling up in this man as he answers. I don't think the man was trying to be difficult. He simply grasped what the hand was pointing to. He was looking that way. He wasn't staring at the hand. And he was astonished. He said, I'm amazed. You don't know where he comes from? And yet he opened the eyes of a man born blind? Now, referencing back to their their opening statement, they said, we know this man is a sinner. The man continues on. He says, well, let me tell you what we know. Because when you said, we know this man is a sinner, you're wrong. Let me tell you what we know. He said, sit down. I'm about to lay down some theological truth on you guys. Because this is amazing. You're supposed to be spiritual leaders and you don't even grasp the simple things. So here they are. God does not listen to sinners. Let me clarify, he says, if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. This man is laying down some theological truth on these guys who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders. Now, this doesn't mean that all signs are from God, for we know that in the last days, the false prophet of the Antichrist will perform signs to deceive the people. Conversely, it also doesn't mean that 
that if, that, uh, if the signs, in this case, a healing does not take place, that God wasn't present. But where did this man get this theology that God does not listen to sinners? Listen to the prophet Isaiah. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. God does not listen to the prayers of sinners, except for the sinner that cries out for mercy and to be saved. This man gets it. This theological truth, this spiritual insight, he has got spiritual sight like the Pharisees do not have. Then he drops another truth bomb on them. He says, never before in the history of the world has anyone born blind received their sight. Never. No one. But scripture does speak of the one who will open the eyes of the blind. Psalm 146, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 42, I will give you as a covenant for my people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Physical sight and spiritual sight come from God. So follow this man's logic. If no one has ever opened the eyes of a man born blind and only God can do that, who's Jesus? Who is he? Something never seen before, no pun intended, has just happened and they can't see it. I think the man gets it. Perhaps as the words are leaving his lips, he realizes Jesus is from God. The Pharisees', Pharisees response was, was kind of expected, but also reiterating the fallacy that began this chapter. He must have been born in sin. In other words, your own blindness testifies to your sinfulness. We don't have to listen to you the fact that you were born blind means you're a sinner. Therefore, we don't have to trust you. We don't have to take your word for it. And then they circled back to the works of man, completely disregarding the works of God. The works of God are what was on display here. Amazing works of God on display. Wonderful works of God on display. And they circled back around to the works of man, claiming this man was a sinner and they cast him out. They no longer had to listen to his testimony and they failed to recognize the works of God. Picking up in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. 
Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus found this poor man. He had gone from outcast to absolute joy to outcast. The Jewish religious leaders rejected him. His own parents disassociated themselves from him. What a few couple of days this man was having. He started off a blind beggar. He'd been an outcast, could not physically see. When he gained both physical and spiritual sight, he was again an outcast from his own people. But Jesus would not let him languish like this. Jesus found him. Back in chapter 5, the controversy began with the paralytic being healed at the pool of Bethesda. He had healed on the Sabbath. And when the Jewish leaders questioned him, he rightly said he did not know. But later, when Jesus found, uh, found the man in the temple, he went right away to tell the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus. The blind man did not turn on Jesus. He maintained his integrity, though it cost him very, very much. Jesus asked a question of this man for which Jesus already knew the answer. Do you believe in the Son of Man? This wasn't just a simple question of belief. It was a question regarding the affections of the heart. Do you trust me? Are you committed? Do you really trust me for your salvation, for eternal life? Are you going to follow me? Do you believe? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Hear the outcast response. I believe this was probably the most humble and sincere words we, say, we have spoken in this um, chapter. Who is he that I may believe? And Jesus answered, it is me, the one right now in front of you, speaking to you. Now it all made sense. The outcast was outcast no more. The hand pointed to the Son of God, the one who could save your soul. And he simply believed and he worshiped Jesus. Jesus said that he came, that those who know that they are lost, blind sinners and outcasts from God can receive sight, spiritual sight, and become children of God. Those who think they are children of God because of their works or maybe because of their birth or for whatever reason that is void of Jesus, they remain blind to their sin. There are many instances in scripture where the wisdom of the world is contrasted with the wisdom of God. The world will tell you there are different paths to salvation. God has only one way and it's through Jesus Christ. And sure enough, the Pharisees heard this conversation. So they ask, just to be clear, are we also blind? Now they knew that he was talking about them and others like them. They probably expected a quick affirmative answer. Yes, that's you. Which would have made them hate him all the more. Instead, he gave a little different answer. He said that if they were indeed truly spiritually blind, they would have no sin at all. 
The Apostle Paul said something very similar in Romans 5. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So he was saying, if you didn't know the law, you wouldn't be guilty. But they claimed to be able to see. In fact, they condemned themselves when they said they were disciples of Moses because Moses had given the law. When they claim to know the law and yet reject Jesus, they remain spiritually blind and thus condemned. But when we become children of God, we are outcasts no more. Sadly, there are many out there who claim to be Christians who do not hold to what Scripture teaches. You see, we cannot earn our salvation ever. There are not enough works, there's no work that can pay for our sin ourselves. There was only one work that was ever done that could pay for our sin, and that was the death of Jesus on the cross for our sin. We will always fail. And no one is ever born a Christian. No one's ever born into a Christian home, and therefore they are automatically a Christian. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, period. If we claim to have spiritual insight and reject what Scripture teaches, we remain in our sin. So what do we learn from this? Ask yourselves, are you staring at the hand? Do you enjoy the so-called stories of the Bible and simply leave it at just that, stories? Or have you looked beyond what the sacred scriptures say as they point to a creator God, a beautiful savior and life-giving spirit? Have you been saved from the realm of darkness into the realm of light and life? Too many people stare at the hand and they miss the Savior. Has your life been transformed? Are you a new creature in Jesus Christ? We are all beggars of grace. No one comes to Christ with great gifts or talents to offer to him. I'm reminded of the kindness of King David to a a young man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was a child of Jonathan and crippled when he was very young. And he was the only remaining descendant of Jonathan who was David's friend. But now that David was king, he had feared for his life because that's how things worked back then. Any rivals would be put to death. But David wanted to show him kindness. And he told this cripple, you will eat at my table at the king's table. The cripple, who's a beggar, who has nothing to offer the king, is invited to dine with the king. And that's how Jesus invites us. Doesn't expect us to bring anything. He has done it all. And finally, do not be surprised by persecution. The blind man was an outcast from religious life his entire life. That would be the Jewish religious life. But he found eternal life. We must keep our eyes fixed on Christ. We can fully expect to be outcasts from today's religions. They will not tolerate us, but they will revile us. We will suffer banishment from society for adhering to scripture and the teachings of Christ. It is all worth it because Jesus is worth it. Let us not be like the cripple who turned on Jesus, but like the blind man who suffered all things for Christ. Let us pray. Holy Father, 
we are again confronted by the relevance of your word, its power and its clarity. Though an ancient document, it reveals more about the human condition and our only solution for fallen humanity. Thank you for the assurance you give. The only hope for Israel and for all people is to worship you with reverence and to embrace your son as Lord and Savior. We know you reign over the affairs of men. You set up kingdoms and rulers, and you do that for your own purposes, for judgment and mercy. We rejoice in the fact that you reign, and we thank you that no matter what happens in this world, we have refuge in you. Father, by your Spirit, enable us to live as you've called us to live. Help us to speak truth and love and to have compassion on all people and mold us more and more into the likeness of your Son, our Lord. We pray all of this through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.